As we prepare to read God's holy word, let us join our hearts again in prayer. Bless, O Lord, the reading and hearing of your holy word. Use it to convict, to convert, to comfort, to challenge. Bring us to the foot of your cross. Help us to receive your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Transform us by your grace to the praise of your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we continue our sermon series through Acts, we are in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through the beginning of verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. In 1893, a series of poems by a never-before-heard-of English author named Francis Thompson was published. And one in the collection began in this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. 
I flood him down the arches of the years. I flood him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him in running, under running laughter, up vistaed hopes. I sped in shot precipitated, down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic insistency, they beat in a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. These words were a part of a poem entitled Hound of Heaven, which was one of the collection in particular that received a great deal of praise The Bishop of London at the time, for instance, declared it to be, quote, one of the most tremendous poems ever written. And indeed, it is beautiful in its rhythm and rhyme, but it is the content of the poem that is truly remarkable. For it expresses the spectacular love of God, which pursues us and claims us as God's own for his own glory, even as we run from him and hide ourselves from him. It's something that Thompson knew all too well himself. Thompson, you see, had lived a tortured life as a young man, having failed at several career paths, and then having become addicted to opium to relieve a health issue. Thompson was left penniless and homeless and contemplated suicide before being discovered as a writer. But even in the midst of running from God in his despair and hardship and sin and failure, God would not leave him alone. I begin here this morning because all that we can learn from this passage, of all that we can learn from this passage in Acts, and there is much to learn, this is perhaps the greatest lesson. Saul of Tarsus was the greatest enemy of the church. Luke has been establishing this fact since we were introduced to Saul at the death of Stephen. And here at the beginning of chapter 9, we're told that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul hadn't slowed down one bit since Stephen's death. In fact, his opposition to the church had only become all the more intense and determined. He is shown here to be seeking permission and given authority to leave Jerusalem to stamp out the church in other places. And in one respect, the fact that Christianity was in Damascus is a remarkable thing. Shows us the speed at which The Christian faith was spreading. We learned in chapter 8 that it had moved to Samaria, but it has taken root even beyond there, further to the north in this Syrian city. Perhaps because Christians had fled there from the persecution in Jerusalem. And don't miss the irony here. Even as Saul is heading north, Philip was headed south, being guided by the Holy Spirit. 
God was advancing his church outward from Jerusalem in all directions more rapidly than his opponents could keep up. But Luke wants us to see here Saul's violent opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand Saul's frame of mind as he headed north on that Damascus road. Saul's intention was to eliminate the followers of Jesus, nothing less. Now, it's important that we understand why Saul raged against this Christian movement that was rapidly expanding. Christianity, in his mind, was not just some silly people who had strange but harmless beliefs. Rather, in Saul's mind, the followers of Jesus were spreading dangerous and damnable deceit. What Christianity claimed was no small thing. They were spreading a lie that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, had risen from the dead, which had shown him to be the Son of God. The Apostle Paul, as we know him better, would later write that if Jesus had not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. He states in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And as he traveled up that road to Damascus, this is exactly how he felt. The followers of Jesus were misrepresenting God because they were preaching that he had raised Jesus from the dead. It was a blasphemous misrepresentation that was leading people away from the truth and from God. And so it must be stopped. This is why Saul was so determined to extinguish the flame of this movement. This is why he was so dogged in his attempts to crush it. He saw it as a righteous thing to stop the spread of lies about God. And it's very important that we understand that this was the framework that Saul was working from because it not only helps us to understand why he so vehemently opposed the church, It also helps us to understand, in some ways, how many see Christianity today. We might wonder why there are some who are so determined to oppose the church today. When so many people seem to have the attitude of just letting people believe whatever they want. Who cares, right? But in the mind of many, Christians aren't just some people who hold ridiculous but harmless beliefs that Jesus is God. Now, there are many who will concede that Jesus was a historical person. One would be a fool, ignoring enormous amounts of evidence to deny this. And there might even be many who acknowledge Jesus to be a great teacher. These absolutist claims that Christians make about Jesus, though, are nonsense in their minds. Not just that he rose from the dead, but that he is God. That he is the only way to the Heavenly Father. That he demands that we die to ourselves and follow him. That we belong to him because we have been purchased by his blood. Now, it isn't out of any sense of trying to protect people from blasphemous lies about God. It is that they believe that people who hold such views as Orthodox Christianity espouses can't really be trusted as rational. Their nonsensical beliefs cause them to ignore and to oppose the views of the world, the views of science. 
And now Christians would be seen as spewing blasphemy against the idols of this age. Those preaching and living a biblical Christianity would be seen as fanatics as well, holding outdated views on things like human sexuality and gender and abortion. In short, Christians are those who oppose justice, who are opposed to personal freedom, who are opposed to loving relationships, and those who are really suspicious of Christianity, might even accuse Christians of holding to such irrational beliefs simply to maintain power and control in society. The Christian faith is the opiate of the masses, right? In other words, Christianity is not just an obnoxious and ignorant religion. It is dangerous. It holds back progress. It limits freedom. It places undue guilt on people's lives. It is viewed as deceptive. And it needs to be destroyed. This is how our opponents view us and our beliefs. In their minds, true Christian faith is toxic to culture. So Saul's hatred toward the Christian faith should give us some insight into why we are met with so much opposition by those who are not only blinded to the truth that Jesus is Lord, but who are also blinded to the truth of God's existence, his holiness, and our accountability to him. And this hatred toward us should not cause us to hate them in return. Rather, it should cause us to pity them. They believe they are on on a righteous crusade for the truth, that they are justified in their persecution of the church. But all the while, in reality, they are serving Satan to work against truth in love, in grace, in peace, in justice. They are working against God in his redemptive work. And we should pity them, for they are utterly lost. They are lost in the darkness of their own sin and have been deceived by the father of lies. This is what Stephen did even as he was being murdered. He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He pitied his murderers and prayed for them, begging the Lord's forgiveness of them. And you have to wonder what sort of seed was planted in Saul that day by Stephen's witness. It must have been curious to him that this man who Saul believed was knowingly trying to deceive others would have died in this way with such conviction and hope and love. And yet Saul continued his rampage against the church. So much so that it wasn't enough just to crush the church in Jerusalem. No, he went seeking permission to take a long, hard six day journey on foot to crush the church in Damascus as well. But Luke tells us, while Saul was actively seeking to destroy the church, he was converted to Christ. Luke wants us to see the drastic contrast of who Saul was when he set out on that Damascus road and who he was when he arrived in that city. And the radical transformation that occurred before he reached Damascus was because Jesus himself appeared to Saul in the form of a bright heavenly light and spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And when Saul asked who was addressing him, the Lord replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
And in an instant, Saul was met with an undeniable reality. Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead, was alive, and was reigning in glory. There was no other way to understand this theophany that now confronted him. And think about what this means. It meant for Saul that all that the Christians were saying was true. Jesus was alive, and is Lord. And this truth brought judgment on all that Saul had been trying to do. He had been dragging Christians to prison and to their deaths for what he believed was a blasphemous lie, but now that had been utterly refuted. In a flash, Saul was brought low. He was rendered helpless, powerless, physically blinded by the radiant light of Christ. As Luke tells us, he had to be led at that point by the hand of those in his party into the city. And Jesus didn't even tell him what would happen next, just that he would go into the city and await instruction. But in his confusion and brokenness, his spiritual eyes were opened to the truth of who Jesus Christ was and is. Now, it goes without saying that this is an amazing thing that occurred to Saul. As Charles Spurgeon put it, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was one of the most remarkable facts in Christian history. Perhaps there has never happened an event of equal importance since the days of Pentecost. It was important as a testimony to the power and truth of the gospel. When such a man, so violently opposed, so intelligent and well-instructed, could be converted to the faith of the Nazarene by the appearance of the Lord from heaven. It was a testimony alike to the fact of our Lord's resurrection and to the power of his word. Spurgeon is absolutely right that the implications of Saul's conversion are tremendous. Tremendous from the perspective of affirming the validity of the church's testimony about Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Tremendous from the perspective of what Saul was going to be called to do by Jesus Christ, namely to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Tremendous from the fact that Saul went from being the most zealous persecutor of the church to the most ardent witness for Christ and willing to suffer great persecution himself for the sake of Christ. Tremendous from the reality that Jesus is seen here so identifying with his people. That there is such a strong union between him and his people that Saul's previous persecution of the followers of Jesus is the persecution of Jesus Christ himself. And this certainly plays into what he will later say as the Apostle Paul about the church being the body of Christ. But what I hope we will see this morning is one very simple reality. This passage reveals to us that no one, no one is beyond the grasp of God Almighty. He is sovereign over salvation. And he has the power to convert even his worst enemy to himself. He can and he does. 
We can be searching for him because the Spirit has already been at work laying the groundwork in us, as seemed to be the case with the Ethiopian eunuch, or we can be utterly opposed to God. We can be actively seeking to destroy him and his church. It doesn't matter. If the Lord, by his sovereign grace, has chosen us as his possession before the foundation of the world, then we won't be able to escape him. The hound of heaven will run us down. He will pursue us until we can run no more, and he will overtake us with his love and his kindness will lead us to repentance. Think with me about how many who were once opposed to Jesus Christ and yet were converted to him. We might think of St. Augustine, who, after his conversion in his early 30s, became one of the greatest and most influential theologians in church history. You can read of his story, the story of his conversion in his book, Confessions. He came to Christ after running from the faith his mother Monica had tried to instill in him as a boy. Instead of committing himself to Christ at a young age, he left the church. And he chased hard after the pleasures of the flesh. He devoted himself to the wisdom of the world and pagan philosophy. But he could not escape God in his truth. So caught in a struggle with God, refusing to repent of his sin, he one day heard a voice take up and read. Over and over again. And so he picked up a Bible and read the first thing he saw. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And through God's word, he heard the Lord speak to him directly, and he finally surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and placed his faith in him. After his conversion, he wrote that his heart had been pierced by God's love. C.S. Lewis is another. He, too, was raised in the Christian faith, which he quickly abandoned after suffering a tragic childhood marked by loss. The death of his mother at a young age, the abandonment of his father who sent him to a boarding school which was later shut down because the headmaster was literally committed to a psychiatric hospital. At the age of 17, he wrote to a longtime childhood friend who was a Christian. This is what he said. I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. Despite his efforts, he could not remain an atheist, though. In his early 30s, he was converted to Christ after reading Christian authors George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton and from conversations with his close friend J.R.R. Tolkien. It was not something that he described as having been done by his own volition. However, in his book, Surprised by Joy, he compares his experience of conversion to a prodigal, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. He writes, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, college, Oxford. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, listen to this, the steady, 
unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. God would not let him escape. And you can read of his intellectual and spiritual journey to faith in Christ in his allegorical story, The Pilgrim's Regressed. Just as Augustine, we know that Lewis also became a great defender of the Christian faith. In our time, Rosaria Butterfield, She was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. She was a self-avowed feminist, an LGBT advocate. According to her own biography, she advised the LGBT student group, wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LGBT aims alongside her lesbian partner. In short, she was a leftist lesbian professor, not someone who would be a candidate to become a Christian by anyone's wildest expectations. And yet, when she wrote an article against the religious right, she got a response from a Presbyterian pastor named Ken Smith. They formed a friendship as she continued her research on the religious right, their Bible, and what she called, quote, their politics of hatred against people like me. It was through this friendship with a man she intended to simply use as a resource for her research and through her reading of Scripture that she came to Jesus Christ in faith. In an article she wrote for Christianity Today after her conversion, she said this about before she converted. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians, in particular, were bad readers. Always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Brett Shampoo commercial model. This is what she thought of Christians. But God had other plans for her. You can read a fuller account of her conversion in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And the title really says everything, doesn't it? How is it that someone like this could be converted to Jesus Christ, could surrender her life to him, could die to herself and all of her strongly held ideologies and ways of life and could follow him in faith and obedience? How is it? If it weren't well recorded, one might not believe it at all. 
And these are not irrational, unlearned, or unstable people. Augustine, Lewis, Butterfield. As a matter of fact, each of them had received the best that the world had to offer in terms of education. They were highly educated, highly intelligent, extremely motivated, and successful according to the world, which meant that they didn't need to become Christians from a worldly perspective. They didn't have anything at all to gain in this world by converting to Christianity. In fact, they had much to lose. But this was also the case with Saul. And as much as the world wants to paint Christianity as an irrational faith held by simpletons who are clinging to anything because they have nothing else, it is simply not true. Now, none of them had a Damascus Road experience like Saul had. None happened in just a moment or with a vision of Jesus. Each conversion is unique to the individual, but all conversions are alike in that it is the sovereign God who is, in his great love, pursues those whom he has chosen. And his grace is irresistible, even for the unlikely convert, the one who has not only resisted the Christian faith, but has denounced it and derided it. There is not one who is unreachable to God. And with that in mind, the testimony of Acts concerning Saul of Tarsus should do two things for us. First, it's an encouragement to any of us who are actively seeking to flee from God, to quit trying to escape from Him. The Apostle Paul will later say when he recounts his conversion before King Agrippa in Acts 26, that Jesus said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. In other words, it is futile to fight against God and his will. His will will not be thwarted. He will win every time. This story encourages us then to surrender to the Lord. Surrender to him. If you've been trying to go your own way, do your own thing, chase after the pleasures of this life, looking for satisfaction, stop. Where can you go that you can flee from his spirit? Our joy is found in the Lord alone. Our purpose, our hope, it is found in the Lord alone. Surrender to him. Surrender to him. He died for you that you might be his possession. Give yourself to him. Enthrone him as Lord over your life. You will not escape from him in the sooner you surrender, the fuller your joy will be. The more time you will spend enjoying him and glorifying him on this side of eternity. Second, it should give us plenty of encouragement to pray for those who are lost all around us. It should give us encouragement to pray for our sister or our brother, our son or our daughter, our husband or our wife, our father or our mother, our friend, our coworker who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We should pray for those who stand in active opposition to the faith. And we shouldn't just pity them, pray for them. We pray for those who are sick, right? We pray for those who are grieving. We pray for those who need wisdom and guidance. How much more should we be praying for those who do not know the Lord? who are dead in their sin. Why do we doubt that the Lord will save? If God can and does save Saul, then he can and will save anyone he chooses, regardless of their opposition. There is no heart that is so hardened that God in his power and love can't melt it. 
God is capable of removing the hardest heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Some of you may know the story of Christopher Yawn, and if you don't know it, I want to encourage you to read his story and his book, Out of a Far Country, or watch his testimony. It is readily accessible online. In one regard, it's a horribly sad and tragic story. It's a story of a young man with enormous potential before he gave himself over to homosexuality and drugs. After being expelled from dental school within a few weeks of graduation, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where he became a prominent drug supplier to dealers in 11 different states. He lived a life of partying, drugs, and sex, having multiple homosexual partners each day. During that time, his parents, who themselves were a wreck and on the verge of divorce, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And they began praying for their son. They cried out to God and they fasted on his behalf. They reached out to him, sending him cards and letters and scripture passages, but he pushed them away and rejected them. As he recalled, he wanted nothing to do with them or their God. But as Christopher put it, his mother had prayed a very bold prayer for him. She had asked the Lord to do whatever it took to bring him to Jesus Christ. That prayer was answered one day when a knock came on his door. Twelve federal drug enforcement agents who had come to arrest him. He was sentenced to six years in prison for drug trafficking. And if he thought he couldn't get any lower, he learned in prison that he had contracted HIV from his promiscuous lifestyle. It was during his time in prison, though, that he found a Gideon's New Testament Bible, where of all places but a trash can. He fished it out, took it back to his cell, and began to read it. His parents over the years had tried repeatedly to expose him to God's word, not only sending him scripture passages, but giving him a Bible. He had always thrown them away. Again, it wasn't a lightning bolt experience like Saul experienced, but over time, through the reading of God's word, Christopher was delivered from his sin, from his addiction to drugs, from his identity as a homosexual, and he was claimed by God's grace as God's child in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. By the way, before he was released from prison. He applied and was accepted at the Moody Bible Institute to continue to study God's word and to grow in his faith. He said the conversations were very interesting as people said, well, what did you do last summer? I was in prison. He graduated and continued on with his education, receiving a master's degree in biblical exegesis and then a doctorate in ministry. He now teaches at Moody and travels the world sharing his testimony speaking on the Christian faith and homosexuality. Christopher Yon's story should encourage us to pray for non-believers. His mother and his father's faithfulness to pray for their son should inspire us to pray for those around us, especially those who seem hopelessly lost. The same is true, by the way, of Augustine's mother, Monica, whose prayers for her son were later acknowledged by Augustine to have been heard by God and answered bringing not only Augustine to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but also his father. So do we cry out to God like this? Do we trust that God is sovereign to save? Do we believe that God would choose someone, even like Saul, the worst of sinners, to be his beloved child by his grace and for his glory? Do we? If we do, then it means that God could also choose someone like me. Someone like you. Those whom we love. 
those whom we fear or despise, the hound of heaven is after all those whom he has chosen. Will we surrender ourselves to him? Will we pray for the lost? Will we allow God to use us to share the gospel with them as Tolkien did with C.S. Lewis, as Ken Smith did with Rosaria Butterfield? I pray we will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we are prone to wander, you are faithful to pursue. We thank you that your love for us never gives up, never backs down, never ends. That your kindness toward us is relentless until, alas, we have found ourselves at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. But we pray that we would not delay, but be quick to place our faith in Jesus and be obedient to your God. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.